You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our sermon text comes from 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say to you, The donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, What shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul among also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Maltrites was taken by Lot. And Saul the son of Kish was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! 
Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it before the, up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. And there's not a whole lot of action happening in chapter 9. Brian still did a, a wonderful job sort of uh, exegeting that scripture and giving us some great, um, some great truth to live by. And the, this chapter is just a little bit more action-packed. So we're going to dig through it. Um, I'm going to kind of walk through the text, and then I'll give you a few points of some what I saw as relatively clear application in how we ought to live in light of the truth of God's word. We start out this chapter, uh, Samuel anoints Saul, which maybe doesn't seem extraordinary at all, uh, but it really is. One of the things that, we're, that, that I hope to point out to you over and over again in this text today is there is a ton of symbolism that we should be picking up on um, because it actually really helps to understand what all God is doing and the depth of his kindness in what he's doing here. So Samuel anoints Saul in private. So what we saw at the very end of uh, chapter 9 is Samuel essentially sent away uh, Saul's servant. It's just the two of them. Um, it's just the two of, uh, of them, Samuel and Saul. And the thing that's, that's pretty remarkable about this is that anointing was a thing, uh, an action only done to priests up to this point. Okay, so Samuel's got to be thinking like, what? What are we doing here? I'm not a Levite. Like, this isn't, like, what are we doing? What? Uh, this isn't my place. And so, oh, that just got real loud. Sorry about that. Um, but what is uh, anointing? It is a symbol of the endowment of the Spirit of God on the work of the man. So, for the first time in, in history to this point, uh, the, the man who will be the leader of, um, the, of God's people in a in a sort of civic kind of way, a civil magistrate in, by means of a monarchy, right? The, the first time ever, this, uh, this man is being anointed as a priest would have been. So for this is what we should see in this, the, the first time in history where the monarchy is consecrated as a divine institution. It, this is sort of the union of church and state, now, the other thing that's interesting is God, uh, when, when, Saul, or when Samuel is anointing Saul in this moment, he says a few things. And the first of which is um, that he will be, he is to be, this is the sort of middle of verse 1, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? One of the things that I saw that was interesting here is that uh, th- this word prince um, is in the Hebrew, the word nagid, it is translated in other places throughout the Old Testament as ruler, leader, captain, or commander, obviously, will be and is uh, the, the head ruler, the monarch, um, but in a distinctly different way than what the people had asked for. So if you look back in previous chapters in 1 Samuel, when the people had said, we want a king, the word king in Hebrew is a different word. The Hebrew word is melech, a ruler like, as in in nature, like the other kings of other nations. So this is our first indication that what God is giving his people 
is not exactly what they asked for. They asked for a king, and he is giving them a king, but in a very characteristic way, God surprises his people, does not give them exactly what they ask for, but in fact, something quite better. So part of this private ceremony, aside from the anointing, there is in this a charge, a commissioning, where he says, and this is a sort of midsection of uh, or I guess the, the last line of verse 1, and you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Sorry, that's the middle of verse 1. So that is the charge. He, he's, Samuel is saying to Saul, hey, you're going to be anointed. The Spirit of the Lord is endowed upon you for a really specific purpose. And that purpose is you shall reign over the people of the Lord in order that you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. What's ironic is what? God had already done that. God has demonstrated his kindness. He had, he had demonstrated the efficacy of his power to save and rescue his people. And yet, they've asked for someone else. This is like your, if, if you have young kids or young nieces, nephews, someone young, like young in your life, you'll know uh, you give you say, yeah, you can have a cookie. And they say, well, I don't like those cookies. I want better cookies. I want different cookies. That's the, that's the fit that the people are pitching here. So the, the clear purpose in Saul's leading is to save God's people from their enemies, something, frankly, that God had already provided to them. But then we see Samuel gives Saul, actually God gives Saul, by way of Samuel, three divine signs intended as gifts to assure Saul that God is the one at work here. This is not just you were in the wrong place or the right place at the wrong time or right time. Like this isn't just happenstance. This is by divine appointment. And so these three signs are these. Well, he says, this is the the very last line of verse 1, and this shall be the sign to you. That the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. One, this first one is, um, and these are, we should see these very practical, uh, symbolic, and unmistakable events. Okay, so the first one, these two, look, you're going to meet these two men in this very specific spot who are going to say this very specific thing to you. And oh, by the way, these are not men who would have naturally known anything about lost donkeys. Right? They, they didn't like go and post like flyers on all the telephone poles seeking lost donkeys. Like they, these men wouldn't have known about the donkeys, and yet that's exactly how they address Saul. So, here's your sign. Right? Here's sign number one. Sign number two. Then, you're going to continue on. You're going to get to the, this next very specific spot. These very three specific men carrying these specific elements of sacrifice are going to offer you bread and you should take it. Now, again, I'm going to point to the symbolism in both of these two things. One, donkeys were a symbol. We've, we've heard uh, this preached from this pulpit before. Donkeys are a symbol of royalty, as in uh, royalty rides on donkeys into the city. Right. Like, so you should be making some connections right now, hopefully to... There's another point later, maybe in the New Testament, where there's some uh, ruler, some king who rides into a city on a donkey and everybody puts palm branches down. That's a sermon uh, later in the spring. You should note that, is a, that we, we see in this, this wasn't just three random lost kind of animals. These aren't goats, they're not pigs, they're not, of course it wouldn't have been pigs. 
They're not just three lost animals, right? They're, they're donkeys, and they are donkeys to give us a little bit of an indication of this is a royal event that, uh, that is occurring. The next one, uh, these three men carrying uh, these elements of sacrifice. So uh, look here in... Okay, verse 3, back half of verse 3. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats to be sacrificed, another carrying three loaves of bread for sacrifice, and another carrying skin of wine. We should see the the sacrificial elements here and understand that this is like a joining of a priestly symbol with a a kingly prince uh, uh, symbol in these first two signs. Finally, third sign. When you get to this specific spot with this, where the detachment of Philistine army is, you'll meet this group of prophets with these instruments, and the Spirit will come upon you, and you will be turned into another man. Three very distinct, very divine symbols. Uh, two that are, again, intended as good gifts to Saul to convince him, to assure him that this isn't just random. Uh, Samuel didn't just... Uh, choose him out of the crowd because he was a tall guy. Tall guys get a lot of attention, and this wasn't that. Like, this is God's ordination. So, where do they go? He goes off. All of these signs come to pass, um, and as he turns, well, I'll tell you what, I'll come to that here in just a minute. He goes on, all of these signs come to pass, which not only conveys the divine providence of God to Saul, but also demonstrates this new sonship for Saul, that he has become a son, a disciple, a a new version of Samuel. So we think about uh, Paul, the way Paul uh, talks about even Titus in the New Testament. He says, my son, Titus, my son in the true faith, my true son in the faith, right? There is this relationship of, that, that mimics father-son relationship that's new here. And we're going we're gonna to find out just a little bit more about how that is described in just a few minutes. So God, God is the one directing Saul by way of Samuel uh, on what to do after these signs come to pass. So if we look in verse 7 and 8, he says, Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming to you. Uh, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you'll wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So Samuel is saying, and, and this is a this is a good point. Um, Samuel's saying, look, you're going to know what to do because God will make it clear to you, and I'm going to give you essentially a week to do whatever that is. You go, you get there, and you'll know what to do. Saul has to be thinking, I, who knows what he's thinking, right? He's just been anointed, which he's like, he's never seen that happen for any other sort of ruler of the country, like of the nation. He's only ever seen that um, in the context of priesthood. And then he tells him about these three signs that are going to be, look, they're symbols of kingship, they're symbols of priesthood in here. And then he's going to be the one that prophesies, like, what the heck? Prophet, priest, king. Let that ring for a second. Where will we see that again? Here's a hint. Next week's Advent. Okay. Prophet, priest, king. So these symbols are, are very clear, and Saul's got to be wondering, like, what the heck is going on? And what am I supposed to do? How is this going to work? This is like the, the precipice of his life being com- completely turned upside down. And Brian talked about this a little bit last week. Samuel, for all the reasons he could have, doesn't despise Paul or Saul. 
He for sure doesn't despise Paul either. Samuel doesn't despise Saul for all the reasons that he could have, but yet he demonstrates his love and care for him in walking obediently in what God uh, has planned here. Now, uh, something that should not be missed here is that as uh, Saul kind of concludes, he's given Saul these, Samuel concludes, he's given Saul these instructions. um, And then it says in verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. So, so God is calling Saul to this very specific uh, task of which Saul can hardly even, he, he can't even get his head around yet. And yet God is already imbuing him with something, uh, a different substance as a man. Okay? He's been anointed, this endowment of the Spirit is on him, and then he turns to go and it says God gives him a new heart, another heart. Let's put a pin in that. So he, Saul goes on. He sees these signs of God come to pass and then winds up prophesying, causing those who knew who he was to question what had changed. So Saul is at this point a demonstrably different man. We see this uh, when they start asking questions, right? So follow me. Um, if we go verse 10. Okay, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets uh, met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Okay, this is the third sign. We see that. Verse 11, and when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to another, what's come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who's their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? So, just as, as Samuel had told him it would happen, he goes to this place, he's overcome by the Spirit, he prophesies, probably hadn't done that before. The, the, these people around him knew whose son he was. They, they were aware of who he was. They said, what's up with this guy? Is, is this the son of Kish? Like, they're not prophets. Like, how did this just happen? And who's, whose son is he? Whose disciple is he? How did he change from who he, we knew him to be, the son of Kish, to this guy who's standing among us, overcome by the Spirit and prophesying? How did this happen? Um, this is what points us to th- this sonship relationship uh, with Samuel. So, He goes on from, Saul continues on um, as, a, as a demonstrably different man. Um, and he, oh, one thing I was going to point out too is uh, he becomes a different, uh, a different man. So he's given a new heart, um, but he, there is a substantive change that, that scripture records here that is like profound and again, not worldly, right? Like this is God's hand at work changing who the substance of who Saul is. So he goes from there. Uh, he continues on to his home. Um, and one of the interesting things is that if it were me, so what he said here, we're in verse 14. Saul, uh, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, hey, where'd you go? He said, well, look, I, you sent me to find the donkeys. I went to look for the donkeys, didn't find them. So I went to Samuel and Saul's uncle presumably is like, oh, you saw Samuel. Like, what did Samuel say to you? And again, if this were me, I, 
I mean, I'd be pretty excited to talk to my family about this. Like, hey, this is like, look, if I had, if I had the $2 billion winning lotto ticket, right? And like, I have the ticket, I pull out my phone, I see the numbers match, I check it 16 times, I'm sitting in my truck, and like start having like some sort of cardiac event. Like, I'm like overwhelmed with, oh my gosh, what's about to change? How is this going to, like, what's going to happen? Um, I'm for sure not going to go like stand on like, some massive corner of the city and say, hey, guess what I won, right? I'm a billionaire. Like, that's not what's happening. But what I'm for sure going to do is go home and go, Brady, just sit down. Here's what happened, right? I'm I'm excited to share that. This is not Saul's story. (laughs) Saul's uh, timidity is noted here. And and perhaps his besetting sin, as we'll see a couple of times throughout, uh, even his, his reign and in this chapter as well. But that, that sort of timidity is brought to bear when he's questioned about where he'd been. And he didn't offer this life-altering news. He just said, here's the, here's the practical situation. Uh, what we'll see again in chapters, or, I'm sorry, in verse 22 and 23, and then we'll see more of this timidity, so, sort of this insecurity that marks Saul's reign. But um, just note that like he's not overtly excited about what's happening here. Okay, so what happens next? Samuel gathers the people at Mitzpah. What's significant about Mitzpah? Why is this detail included here? Well, it's not arbitrary. Mitzpah is the place, if, if you remember back to or go back and read chapter 7, this is the place where God had called the people By way of Samuel, again, Samuel had called the people to repentance from worshiping idols, which they had done. They had repented from worshiping idols. And then God had delivered them from the Philistines. Again, Samuel brings them to this place. This place should be a reminder, a physical reminder of, oh, this is the place that God delivered us. This is the place where we confessed our sins and God rescued us. It's not insignificant that this is the place where Samuel gathers these people, the the people of Israel. And then what does he do right out of the gate? He begins with a rebuke, a really clear, like, hey, by the way, all my due diligence here, you're all in sin, right? And here's what you did. So uh, this is verse 18. He said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. This isn't Samuel's like qualifying. Hey, this isn't me. This is the Lord speaking. Pick up the red phone. I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Which, side note, is what the people had been asking for. We want a king to deliver us. You two-year-old, like you had the cookie. Like you had the thing that you're asking for in a different way. I don't like Chips Ahoy. I like Oreos. Okay. God is reminding them, I is my hand that delivered you from the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Verse 19, but today, Samuel saying, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. Was there not already a king over them? Was there not already a king over them who had done what they were asking for? To deliver them from the hand of their enemies. Samuel's saying, as clear as he possibly can, 
Look, let me bring you to this place. Let me show you the reminder. Look in front of you. This is where God rescued you. This is where your king has rescued you. And yet you've said, we want a different one. We want one like the other nations have. Okay. Now that that's clear, Samuel gets, gets that out of the way and says, all right, let's get on with it. Uh, and so they... they uh, they, they move ahead. Samuel moves ahead here. Um, we're right around uh, the, the tail end of verse 19. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So, like, again, this is not like a small group of people. There are thousands and thousands of people uh, as the people of Israel. And what do they do um, to, to select a king, a ruler over them? There's, there's no election by the people. Uh, there's no... Nominations, no lobbying or jockeying, no uh, statement of positions or debates that are occurring. Rather, before all of the people, before the gathered people of God, the selection of the king is, at least in the eyes of the people, left to the sovereignty of God by way of casting lots, by chance, right? There's no such thing as chance. The people actually recognize this in the lots, but they say, this is God's ordinance, like this is God's sovereignty by way of causing these numbers or these names to appear in whatever uh, game of chance that they're using to cast the lots. Okay? So the first, uh, first they, they sort of narrow it down. They, they first select a tribe, right? Out of all the 12 tribes of Israel, Benjamin. Okay. All of the tribe of Benjamin come up here. Great. They're all organized by their clans. They're clearly wearing their kilts with different tartans. So you can tell which clan they are, as fine clans they are. Um, they cast lots again. It's the clan of the Matratites. There you go. Um, so then they pull that clan forward, and then they put all the names of those men in a hat, and out comes Saul's name. So Samuel's got to be going like, this is essentially a game of chance. And Saul's sitting here going, yeah, I wonder how this is going to turn out. I already know the name, right? But to the people, this was, okay, this is God sort of narrowing it down. Ooh, it's the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, it's their clan. Ooh, it's this guy, Saul. And what do they do? They look around and go, where's Saul? Where's Saul? And like, there's got to be some other guys wondering from this clan, wondering like, uh, is this like a you must be present to win kind of situation? Like, I don't see him. Are you going to draw another name? Is it my name? Um, and so they look to God by way of the high priest who says, no, no, Saul's over there. He's hiding, in the, he's hiding in the baggage. And what we should see in this is that even after this uh, selection process, they, can't, they can no more, the people of Israel can no more find for themselves a king than they can cause the weather to change. Like they are utterly dependent on God. Even when they find, uh, they narrow it down to this guy, they look around where's the guy? Where's the winner? Nowhere to be found. They go and find him. And you just wonder, right? So the, uh, these verses, in my mind, sort of point to the same sort of timidity that we saw when Saul got back to his family and mentioned nothing about, hey, here's this life-altering family. Like, this affects our entire family. This life-altering event, he skips all that, doesn't tell him about it. Um, he, he knows at this point, like, what's happening, right? He knows Samuel's going through all this lot process. All the people of Israel are like, who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? Who's it going to be? And he's, he's, like, hiding out, right? Keeping his head down. 
maybe if they don't find me, they won't make me king. I don't know what he's thinking. We don't have necessarily um, the, the context here to, to, to understand his intent. But whether he's afraid or overwhelmed or just shy, uh, this is for us a second demonstration of an aversion that tells us really and truly he's not overtly excited about this development and what lies ahead. And yet, they find him, drag him out. They, they stand him in front of the people. Saul stands him in front of the people. And in verse 24, he says, Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There's none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. And what follows next is something, again, dramatically different than what, the, than what God's people had ever known up to that point. So Saul knew what was going on. Samuel knew what was going on. He had a, Samuel had anointed Saul. That's already like a clear indicator. This is a very different type of monarchy than like the other nations had. And what Samuel does here is before the people, and so this is um, getting down to these last sentences here, or these last few verses. It's verse 25. Um, before the people, God, uh, God directs Saul as a new king, again, using Samuel, he directs, this whole instruction is directed towards Saul, um, and, and what he does is brings an entirely new framework for their social construct. He, he writes down, it says, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote it in a book and laid it before the Lord. These instructions, presumably to prevent excesses and abuses by the king, as witnessed in countless other monarchies at that time and between now and then. And further, he charges the king with his responsibility to the people. This is a constitutional, theocratic monarchy. This is the melding of church and state. This is God in one man saying, this is, this is a priestly role. It is a, uh, a prophetic role. It is a leading role. We should be, again, making some connections out to the New Testament in Christ as the king, the king of kings. So God creates for his people a new, unique identity. Rather than a people of disparate tribes united by a common history and a, and a united uh, by a common law, he's, he's created a, a nation united by a king and a new national identity, a, a tangible outworking of the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis uh, reflected on the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II um, with a keen eye toward the gravity of a, of a moment like this, it, which, is, uh, which is incredible, like centuries and centuries after this, what we're seeing in this text. But in a letter to a friend, he wrote this, this is uh, C.S. Lewis writing to a friend. You know, over here, people did not get that fairy tale kind of feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of, and one hardly knows how to describe it, awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. 
Humanity called by God to be his vice regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if he said, in my inexorable love, I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. Do you see what I mean? One has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that coronation is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. There's a, there's a certain beauty and like overwhelming beauty in what God is doing here. There is a beauty in, in what God is doing in ordaining Saul to be a king, a priestly king over his people that should draw our attention to Christ as king of kings, a priestly, prophetic, perfect ruler. This is a completely different construct for the people of God. What an incredible gift it is. So this chapter closes with, uh, with division over God's servant. In verses 26 and 27, we read that Saul went to his home in Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. But he, Saul, held his peace. So God, again in his kindness, surrounds Saul with godly men and godly counsel, and yet there are some who reject him. And Saul, in this moment, look, I, again, whether because of a lack of courage to do something about it out of a, or, or out of a, some sort of patient demeanor, he chooses not to act against his dissenters. But what we must see in this is that when God brings his servant and that servant walks in obedience, there is division in the wake. There are those who accept and, and desire that kingship, that priestly kingship, and who are uh, entirely willing and excited to, to walk in that. And then there are those uh, here worthless fellows who, who just question and reject. What's this guy going to do? How is this good for us? And they refuse to even respect him and give him honor. So what do we do? What do we do with this? Um, how, how is it that, that we ought to see what God is like in this text and how ought we to live uh, differently because of it? Well, one... God gives his people a version of what they'd asked for, but it's a much better version. It's not exactly what they'd asked for. How often do we see that this is what God does? God's gifts, his gifts are far better and, most importantly, aimed at purposes that we can't often conceive of. Those purposes are much higher than our own comfort or desires. And yet, he demonstrates his kindness over and over and over again, making his direction clear. We must not bemoan his kindness or reject his will. We, we must have eyes to see that the gifts of God, while sometimes delightful and joyful and simple or easy, they do bring comfort. God does give us gifts that bring us comfort. And... From his hand are gifts that are sometimes difficult 
and hard and weighty. And all of it is in God's kindness. All of it, every single one of those gifts is for the purpose of his glory, not just our, um, our comfort. So God, um, the, the second piece. So one, we have to have eyes to see the gifts from God's hand, recognize what they are, be thankful for them, and walk in obedience and walk in that gratitude. Secondly, God chooses to carry out his will with whomever he desires. Saul could not hide from this task. This was ordained by God. And what's interesting is this chapter begins with Saul knowing this is a substantively different type of thing that is being set upon Saul. And he, has, he yet has no idea all the implications of what that's going to mean for him and his family and for the rest of his life. But from the outset, we know that it is different. And yet, we see these couple little windows into, he tries to hide. He doesn't want to talk about it. Tries to hide from it a little bit. Wonders, is this actually going to happen? Is there a way out of this? Is, there, is this actually the thing that God is doing? We cannot escape the call of God on our lives. E- even if we try, God will have no other king but himself. We can resist the things that God calls us to do for whatever reasons or justifications we might be able to conjure up. But he will not tolerate other kings, not even ourselves. He will accomplish what he wills and what he desires. If God's called you to something, if he's called you to, uh, if there's some door, some opportunity that God has clearly opened for you, um, how do you respond to that? Do you run from it? Do you, do you try to justify, like, just sort of, uh, maybe you just slide past a little bit? Maybe if I just wait it out a little bit, it, it'll go away. Maybe, maybe that sounds really uncomfortable. That sounds like it could cost my, my family some time or cost us some money. Maybe any of the things that we use to justify not doing what it is God set in front of us. Whatever field God has set in front of you, whatever plow he has set in that field, I grew up on a ranch, so you're going to get common references to agrarian things for me. If God has put you at, at the precipice of a field and he set a plow in front of you, and you go, hmm, I don't know if my hands really fit the handles here. Like, are you running from it? Are you running from something that God has called you to do? Are you making justifications or uh, somehow making excuses for, you know what, I don't know that God wants me to, to take a pay cut. It doesn't feel like something that's very kind. I want you to stop and consider what it is that God's asking you to do. It will not always be the easy thing. But it will be the, the good thing. And, by the way, you can't hide from it. You won't escape it. God will accomplish his purposes. It's a little bit easier if you don't dig your heels in. The third, the third thing uh, I want you to see here is that faithful servants of, uh, of God, uh, men and women who honor Jesus with their lives, leave this same wake of division behind them. There are people who can see and taste and smell the goodness of God in the outworking of the hands and work of people. 
And then there are those um, who, who reject it, who don't see truth, beauty, and goodness following the obedience of, of a servant of God. They don't see it. So Saul here, uh, from the outset of his reign, and if, again, uh, if we think about this, if we see this chapter as sort of moment in time, which is a little bit tough for us to do. We've already read the rest of this story. We know what scripture, uh, is, where scripture is going to take us. It's going to describe Saul, the rest of Saul's reign. And uh, it's not like, it's not great. <laughs> he doesn't nail it, right? Uh, just hopefully that's not a spoiler to you. Um, but at this moment in time, okay, from the outset of his reign, Saul is set up for success. The only condition that the king and the people uh, is that the, the king and the people fear and serve the Lord. We'll see this described even more clearly in chapter 12 when we get there sometime in like January. But here, in receiving that which the people had asked for, there are those who gladly accept the gift of God's hand. And there are others who reject it. Who refuse to honor this king that they had asked for, that God had provided out of his abundant mercy. When he was already serving them, he was already protecting them. He had already given them Samuel, a, a, a just model of leading the people. And they wanted uh, Oreos instead of Chips Ahoy. Hopefully you've seen, and if not, let me be really clear. We should see in this a foreshadowing of Jesus. God will send the greatest priest king, the once and for all monarch, to rescue his people. And even then, centuries after Saul is anointed as king, some will hail Jesus for who he is, and others will reject and ultimately kill him. This happens yet today. There are those who see the good gifts of God's hand in the gift of Jesus. And there are others who reject it. How will you receive the King of Christ? You bend your knee of submission with humility and gratitude. Even when such submission obligates you to do things that you don't like or prefer. Or will you question and reject him? Believing a lie that you can reign as a better monarch over your own life. May our hearts, may our hearts acclaim the truest and best king of King Jesus. May we submit before and pledge allegiance to him and him alone and serve him alone in faith. Knowing that the gift of Jesus as king is the greatest gift we'll ever receive. Let's pray and prepare for communion.